When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon, and the first thing to say this week is hello to everyone in Fiji. Because last week, in the Apple Sports pod- Podcast chart in Fiji, this podcast was number one. Not number two, number one. And all I'll say is Test Match Special, very popular, was down at number 13. So I don't know why that is. I don't know why Snooker or indeed this podcast is so popular in Fiji. But I want to say hello to everybody out there. Uh, we were number one for two days. It was, it was less Brian Adams, more, uh, well, Babylon Zoo, I suppose. But even so... Number one in Fiji. You know, a lesser man than me would, would point out that the World Snooker Podcast was nowhere to be seen. A lesser man would do that. I'm not going to. But but I want to say thank you to everyone in Fiji. I hope you're enjoying it. And uh, I am available, of course, for a free holiday. Uh, this is <laughs> this is part two of our non-special. Um, it's being recorded before the German Masters final. I don't know who's won the tournament. Everyone listening in the future, of course, does know. Um, but it's been great to be, uh, for everyone to be back in Berlin. And I hope everyone has enjoyed uh, the tournament there's been a lot of uh, drama out there and because um, w- one of the things that happened was Mark Selby lost to Yan Bing Tao uh, in the last 16 and that means Mark Selby won't be at the Players' Championship in Wolverhampton um, which seems strange uh, obviously he's world number one on the two year list but it's worked out top 16 on the one year list he just missed out there's a couple of things I'd say about that one is he decided not to play in the first ranking event of the season the Championship League in Leicester now obviously that's where he lives it would be at the most three days' work. It's easy to say now, of course, oh, well, he should have played in it. He might have got in. But the fact is, he might have got in with a couple of thousand pounds from that. Uh, but he didn't. The other thing is, I think there is an argument, and again, it's hindsight, but there is an argument that it's a bit strange that with that Kazoo series, there's only one ranking event that doesn't count towards it, and it's the World Championship, the biggest of them all. Um, because it's obviously it starts when the new season starts. Now, is there an argument to count World Championship points if, if you did, you'd be guaranteed the world champion in all three events. Um, I think there's a strong argument not to do that because it is for this season. But uh, it's the only ranking event that doesn't count because obviously it falls after them all and then it's, you know, the, the new season starts. It, it doesn't, it's not part of that, that cycle. Um, if it had been, Mark Selby would have been in. He's not going to be in. 
And it's interesting because, as as we speak now, him himself and Judd Trump have not won a ranking event this season. They've not been in the final of a ranking event this season. But they're the number one and two in the world, although actually Trump's going to go down to three. Ronnie O'Sullivan will be two uh, after the German Masters, as you already know, because when you hear this, it will be after the German Masters. Um, and it got me thinking about if Selby... Say Selby doesn't get to a final all season, but then wins the World Championship again. The power of the World Championship is such that People would almost be saying, you know, he's the player of the year. Uh, would it be a successful season or not? The fact is, it wouldn't be. For his legacy, in terms of the sport, it would be, because be a five times world champion. So in legacy terms, it would be. But in terms of the actual season, it wouldn't be. And that's why I think Judd Trump deserves far more credit than a lot of people have given him for the, the two seasons he had when he won all those tournaments. He won five in one season, six in another. These tournaments are not easy to win, and to do it week in, week out, is really impressive. No matter what the tournaments are, to actually be winning them that consistently, that's a great achievement. He's not doing it this season, but maybe he, who knows, will come good at the World Championship. And then, of course, he's a multi-world champion and suddenly all's well again. So it just shows, I think, the, and we'll talk more about this as, as we approach the Crucible, of course, in a few months' time, the power of that World Championship. Anyway, Mark Selby will have to watch the Players' Championship at home. In the meantime, so uh, thanks for all of the emails. Now, if you've sent them in um, in the last couple of days, i.e. at the weekend, you're not going to have them read out because I won't have received them <laughs> uh, in time. But uh, we're going to go through the emails that we didn't get a chance to. Uh, I just want to say, um, before we start, there was a talk of cross-doubles the other week, and my definition wasn't very good. I know that. I didn't explain it very well. Several people have written in with better ones, so thank you for that. Uh, but anyway, we're going uh, we're gonna to get straight to the heart of the matter here with Tom in Croatia. He says, my mother told me when I was young not to stare at people, and especially not close up, but the directors of the TV cameras at snooker tournaments must think they're directing soap operas. There are way too many close-ups of players. I must say, by the way, in Tom's email, there's a lot of cap, cap, uh, capital letters and caps lock and shouting, in effect. I, I'm not an actor, but I'll do my best. Uh, yeah, way too many close-ups of players. I have to look away each time a close-up comes onto the screen. But even worse than that is when the camera shows something else when it should be showing the table. I've been watching snooker since 2004 and I'm always shouting at the screen, the table, the table, show me the blankety-blank table. Just the other day, there was a tense situation in some tournament, I forget which one, so the camera shows a close-up of the player, then it switches to a close-up of the opponent, then it switches to another close-up of the player, then another close-up of the opponent, and all this time, I want to see the blankety-blank table. I didn't train at RADA, in case you're wondering. Uh, he continues, and I can't count the number of times that the camera switches to a close-up of either the player or the opponent before the cue ball even stops rolling, or the cue ball rolls out of camera view and we aren't shown where it went, because guess what? We're shown another close-up of the player or the opponent. Uh, Tom's email continues in the same vein for a while, but I think we, we get the point there, Tom. I, I agree up to a point. I think it's frustrating as a viewer when the... When, it, when they cut away and the cue ball is still rolling because you want to know where the white is. You want to know where all the balls are, but the cue ball is the cue ball. You want to know what is left. Is he on a pot? Is he snookered? Where is he? And sometimes it's true you're seeing the reaction of the player without actually seeing what they're reacting to. But at the same time, it, what the directors are doing, and, and I think this has improved over the years, they're trying to create human drama as much as sporting drama. And a lot of that, a lot of that is actually through the reactions. You know, players, how are they feeling? How do they react to that? Fluke's gone in, how's the other guy feeling? Um, and the crowd are part of that as well, trying to create atmosphere. I think they do that well. It's a balance. It's not always successful, I agree. Um, people want to see, viewers want to see what's happening on the table. But you don't just want to see the table, clearly. You do want to see that other stuff as well. It's a judgment call. 
these guys are highly skilled. Um, I mean, if you've ever been in one of these scanner vans, you know, where they direct these matches, it, it's, it, they're like sort of, it's like an arcade. You know, it's like you're pressing buttons and looking at screens and it, it's not, it's not easy at all. Uh, we lost uh, Steve Doherty, who was one of the best of them uh, last year. He passed away, sadly. He'd been at the BBC in particular for years directing snooker. So I think they do a good job, but I do understand your frustrations. I think people do uh, share them. And, yeah, I, I think when balls are moving on the table, we need to see the table as, as a rule, I think. Uh, James Beard writes, Firstly, please could I take this opportunity to thank you for producing and presenting your podcast. In a world full of depressing news, I always find it refreshing to listen to a discussion about the game of snooker. You often keep me entertained when driving to work. Should you need to fill some airtime, I have a very unimportant question to ask. Well, James, thank you, and uh, not unimportant at all. It's very interesting. He said... During his first round game in the German Masters against Liam Highfield, I noticed that Fan Zhengji had an average shot time of 11.8 seconds. Is this correct? Fan had breaks of 134, 83 and 79 in his 5-2 victory, so it doesn't appear as though he was constantly rushing round the table potting balls. For the season as a whole, Fan ranks 47th on the league table with an average shot time of 23 seconds, so he's clearly not a particularly quick player. To facilitate a comparison... When Tipchara and New played near-perfect snooker to beat Stephen Hendry in the UK Championship in November last year, he had breaks of 129, 100, 107, 59, 52, 136 and 106. And he only averaged 14.2 seconds per shot. As I say, not important, but it did get me wondering. Finally, do you know what the average, fastest average shot time is for any player during a proper best-of-seven upwards match? Well, James, I think what happened here is they had some issues at the Tempodrome uh, in Berlin when the tournament was played. Um with some of the scoreboards and what happens is they'll go to manual scoring and then afterwards they'll input the each shot they've got a, a list of, of all the you know the markers got the list of every pot and they get inputted after the fact and then that goes into the computer but obviously they're not inputting it as a player would play the shot they're not waiting 20 seconds they're just putting them in basically and I think that possibly is what happened there each, every shot time would not have been 11.8 seconds. There's just no chance that it would have been that. Nobody can play that quick consistently through a match. So I think that's what happened. And of course, that, that then, though, that's gone in the computer. That completely distorts the whole shot time for the season, doesn't it? You know, it's, you've got to question some of those timings if this is happening on a more regular basis. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's troublesome, really. Um, Tepchara at 14 seconds, I can believe, with all those breaks he made, because he is really quick. In terms of the fastest average shot time, I actually I don't have that on record, but it'll be, I'm guessing, a, a Tepchara, Ronnie O'Sullivan, a, you know, one, a Jack Lazowski, one of those guys. But I think that's what happened in that match. It happened in a couple. They put the scores in afterwards, and therefore, you know, the shot times were just ridiculously low, and, and that kind of skews the whole thing on that, on that list they put up, I suppose. Um, now, moving on, Will Britton. A couple of questions, or possibly more. Do you know if the British Open will be back next season? I think I must be one of the minority who really enjoyed the format, as well as the random draw every round. Even my niece, who's only two, took an interest. Plus, having it on ITV felt very nostalgic, as I remember growing up watching ITV's coverage of snooker in the early 90s. I even remember the opening theme tune with the Joe Davis portrait. Sad or what? Well, no, listen, you're, you're amongst friends here. Uh, uh, will he continues also has a venue for the Scottish Open been found yet after what was the quite farcical situation regarding the venue this season looking forward to going to the Crucible for the first time this year which in a way will complete my own triple crown snooker for me is a great part of my life being on the autistic spectrum it really helps me keep focused and not get distracted well that's lovely to hear that Will and um, 
Well, direct answers. Yes, the British Open will be back next season. Um, there's a very, very, very provisional calendar, which uh, as you basically there's a secret handshake and you can, you get to look at it. So I'm not allowed to reveal anything about it other than if you see me in Sainsbury's, stop me and I'll tell you about all the tournaments. But the British Open is on it. I don't know anything about the broadcast details or anything like that, venues, time of year, but it is coming back. So I don't know if the format will be repeated, but the British Open will be coming back. Scottish Open, I, no news on a venue, but I'd be amazed... I mean, the venues are not easy to find. We've sort of said this before. They're often booked up. The Scottish Open slot traditionally December, so coming to Christmas, a lot of places booked up. So it's not easy to find places, but I, I, I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure that it will be back in Scotland. I'd be amazed if it wasn't. Um, I know they were looking at Aberdeen at one point uh, as a new venue. Um, that, that was pre-pandemic. Um, so we'll see. But uh, I, hopefully it will be in Scotland because it was... You know, very disappointing, obviously, for everybody uh, up there not to not to get the chance to to go there. But the British Open is on that provisional calendar, and uh, I'm sure there'll be announcements uh, in due course about when and where, and indeed what the format will be. Colin Johnston writes: Before getting onto snooker-related matters, thanks for your recent recommendation of Barry Cryer's podcast. The Stephen Fry episodes were most amusing, as were the Danny Baker ones. On a similar theme, I must acknowledge your excellent comedic commentary line at the shootout, as Robbie Williams was exiting. He'll now. Just need to love angles instead. Uh, surprised it hasn't been mentioned again before now. It deserves another airing. Well, yes, I would contact with Alan McManus, and as, 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 as Colin says there, as Robbie Williams left, I said I'll just have to love angles instead. It didn't get much much reception, but that's fine because you know we're not there to to make wisecracks. Of course, very sadly, Barry Cryer passed away this week at the age of eighty-six. For those maybe outside the UK. He was a, an absolute legend of British comedy as a writer and comedian and, and just general kind of pr- ever-present. He worked with all the greats, the Tommy Coopers, Morecambe and Wise, Kenny Everett, anyone you can think of, two Ronnies. And right up to the present day, he was still you know friend of new comedians. And he had this podcast. I don't know if they, they recorded any more, if there's going to be any more, obviously posthumous, they'll be able to listen to. But um, yes, he was uh, he was a legend. Anyway... On to less important matters, Colin says. I always find myself observing players when they walk into the walk into their music following the MC intro. I can't help but think that maybe the players, on the whole, are a bit reserved when uh, when walking in when Rob Walker or other MCs have whipped the crowd up in advance. I can't help but think it would wouldn't take much for a player to potentially endear themselves to the crowd a bit more and to their advantage. I know it's a serious business and it's their livelihood, and they're most probably in the zone. But if you're lucky, you might get a smile, small wave or not. I'm not saying they should be dancing to the music. Of course, Mark King, <laughs> Mark King did that once at the Masters, quite famously. Uh, but always just think that a slightly greater acknowledgement of the fans could easily make them a fan's favourite. What's prompted me to mention this now, ironically, is off the back of the Masters and how this was more evident with, with most walk-ons being a bit more interactive and warm and certainly the final frame deciders and Higgins of the Higgins-Williams match. I get that, obviously, the bigger the crowd, the more crowd appreciation, the players open up a bit more and respond to this. We might well see more of this in Germany this week, which would be good. I think maybe Sean is giving, he's more giving to the crowd in this respect and a good example. And say some of the Thai players with a simple hand prayer acknowledgement gesture is always endearing. Maybe just me, but welcome any thoughts. Well, um, it's the thing is, it's I mean darts. You know they come on and it is a show, and you Peter Wright dances across the stage and all that. Snooker, it's not that, is it? And a lot of snooker players are actually quite reserved, but also they're obviously really focused on the match. You know, it's nerve-wracking walking out there. 
so they're not really thinking about you know <laughs> putting on that sort of show when they're just walking out um I always think some of the music choices are just a bit odd. I mean, some players just literally just seem to pick, you know, any song at random. They're not really... A lot of the music choices have nothing to do with, you know, they have these nicknames or anything, nothing to do with them other than they just like the song. It's literally just filling that 20 seconds to walk to the uh, to the table. And even, like, you look at the great entertainers. I mean, Ronnie O'Sullivan doesn't really do much to acknowledge the audience. He might raise his hand. But again, you know, he's there to do a job. He's there to play. Um, so everyone's different, uh, but yes, it, it, it's. I mean, the walk-on music is still relatively new, really. It's brought in under the Barry Hearn regime. It had had been used before, certainly in Sky events. It's there to sort of create a bit of an atmosphere beforehand. But of course, you know, the thing about snooker is you basically, you know, it's, from an audience perspective, you're basically there to be quiet, really, and just observe what's happening and obviously applaud. But it's not. It's not like darts. It's a different vibe. You know, the whole thing. But anyway. Um, You've made your points uh, very clearly there. And, yeah, it's up to players, I guess. I mean, Ken Doherty, for example, you know, he comes out or has come out quite often to the Irish Rover. He gets everyone clapping. Robert Milkins, I'm a cider drinker, all that. So there are certain... They're they're clever choices because they're sort of popular songs that get people going. That's a good way of getting the crowd on your side at the start. Some players just seem to, you know, they heard something on Kiss FM, they like it, and that'll that'll do sort of thing. Um, Anyway, that's... uh, Want to monitor, I guess, as the year goes on. Dara Breen. Love the podcast. I just have a few questions that I've been curious about. Number one. Alan McManus has worked for Eurosport for both Triple Crown events this season, where in the past he'd worked for the BBC at these events. Is there any particular reason for this? Number two. What's the mark a referee listening to when they have the headphones on? Number three. Why does Phil Yates only work some events for Eurosport, but all events for ITV? Thanks in advance for your answers. P.S. The shootout shouldn't be a ranking event. P.P.S. Come on, baby, yeah. Of course, that's a reference to Judd Trump. The shootout, that, all that business about the ranking event, you know, people can have their opinions, but that's, you know, that, that's an old argument now. I, I think there was too much talk of that during the actual event. It is a ranking event. End of story. Um, but in terms of your specific questions, well, I mean, Alan is a free agent, and, you know, Eurosport have offered him the chance to work for them, and he's just decided to do that. That's up to him, you know, um... Nothing, nothing to do with me. He's he's been offered the chance, and he obviously enjoys working for Eurosport. And you know he's a very, very valued presence on the coverage. Uh, obviously, uh, the the good thing about Eurosport is you get to work not just on three events, but he can work on pretty much all the events that that that, that they show. Uh, the marker is listening to the commentary actually, um, and that is sometimes helpful. Because there are times, for example, when a player might ask the referee what the high break is, and they won't always know, but the commentators usually will, so he he or she can can pass that on. Um, yeah, so that's essentially what they're listening to. And uh, why does Phil Yates only work some events for Eurosport, but all events for ITV? Well, it's the same thing. Um, you know, there's only so many roles, and Phil is a very valued broadcaster in snooker. But uh, you know, Eurosport have their team. Sometimes he's part of it. Sometimes he's not. Same with same with anyone. So. Um, yeah, that, that's it really. You, you know, there's uh, there's there's plenty of work to go around, and uh, Phil, you can hear at the Players Championship and uh, indeed at the Championship League this week, uh, where I shall also be in Leicester. Uh, Liam McMullen, no relation. Uh, love the podcast. <laughs> love the podcast. Recently, I've had two snooker terms rattling around in my head, and have no idea what they mean or where they come from. I was hoping you could shed some light on them. Firstly, years ago, I remember commentators referring to being full ball hampered over any colour or red whilst trying to cue a Chinese snooker. It's always therefore remained in my mind as this 
and recently I realised I don't hear commentators say it anymore. Does this stem from negative racial connotations? Do you know where it comes from and are negative connotations why it's been phased out of commentary? Secondly, I often hear pundits and players refer, referring to good potting displays or particularly adept potter as potting balls off a lampshade. It seems to be one of those stock phrases, but where on earth does that come from and what does it mean? I don't know if I'm missing something really obvious. Thanks for all you do. Long may the podcast continue. Thank you, Liam. Uh, the Chinese snooker thing, you're right, it was it was a, a term that was often used. No one quite understood um, exactly why that was the term. Um, but, for example, if you look at Chinese snooker players, Ding Junhui. Junhui is actually his, his Christian name and, and Ding is his surname, but obviously... In their culture, it's it's the other way around, and there was some su- suggestion that um, when you're hampered over a ball like that, it's the other way around to being snookered. So maybe that's where it came from. Dominic Dale would be the man to uh, to explain that properly. I think it's gone out of usage, just as you say, because no one wants to cause any unintended offence, um, and so I guess it's it's a certain sensitivity. You know, all language evolves, and you know, there's maybe better ways of explaining that particular scenario now. Potting balls of a lampshade. I've got to be honest. Like I've grown up with this phrase as well, and it's a, it's a strange one. But I guess my interpretation, and, and it's probably wrong, but my interpretation is, you know, you're in a club, and they obviously have the lampshade over the uh, over the table, the the lighting, um, and it's essentially, you know, you basically you can you can pot it off those. You, you know, I don't know. It's it's a strange phrase. It's one of those. You're the first person who's ever asked this. It is a phrase people have used. Potting it off a lampshade, and. Uh, Yes, that's my interpretation, but it's probably wrong because, you, like a lot of things you hear, you just sort of you grow up accepting them. <laughs> um, so anyone who can shed literally light on that would be uh, would be good to hear. I'm sure there is an obvious explanation, but uh, but uh, well, well, we'll see what it is. Brian Campbell. First of all, I'm sure I speak for many of us when I say, when you take stock of the future of the podcast later this year, I really hope it continues. Perhaps a compromise would be to do it once a month. Please don't underestimate the pleasure and interest your podcast gives to our listening week. Well, that's very kind of you, Brian, and uh, we're certainly uh, continuing uh, certainly through the world to the World Championship. Uh, he says, anyway, I have a question about the future of snooker, if I may. It's a big question, to be fair, this, Brian. Where do you see snooker in 10 years' time? Do you think there'll come a time where there'll be less tournaments in the UK as the sport continues to expand around the world? Perhaps the Holy Grail will be a big tournament in America. I tend to think that to crack the US, a snooker shootout type of tournament with its 10-minute frames and shot clocks might be best to grab their attention, especially if they're trying to get fans of other Q-sports, such as Paul, interested. Maybe it would need to be best of nine at least, as you couldn't ask players to fly such a distance for one frame. The advantage in this commercial world for TV out there would be the guaranteed ad breaks for them after each frame every 10 minutes. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts. Well, it's a big question. 10 years' time, so we're talking about 2032. Um, Barry Hearn would be in his early 80s. I think even he, by then, would have <laughs> would have retired. We can't say exactly what the broadcast contracts would look like, but I think in terms of broadcasting, anyone you speak to in broadcasting agrees that the era of linear channels is on its way out. The idea that you have a set television schedule, um, and so at 8 o'clock the snooker's on, you know, and then maybe at 9 o'clock something else is on... At some point, everything will just be streamed, everything will be available on demand, and I think in 10 years' time, it's very likely that that will be the case. So if you want to watch you know, the, the um, Players' Championship, you don't have to wait for... Well, you don't have to find ITV4, you just press a button, live snooker, there you go. Um, and there'll be lots of different 
um, ways of watching it, lots of different things you can watch it on. I mean, there already are, but I'm sure there'll be more invented that we haven't thought about. So exactly whether the BBC, ITV, Eurosport, you know, whether they'll still have the same sort of linear television contracts, I don't know, but there'll be ways of watching it. It may be easier to watch it. You may have to pay. We don't know what's going to happen to the BBC. Um, And that's a big part of it. Broadcasting is a big part of it, obviously. But in terms of the game, I think there will be a shift away from the UK. Um, That's already happening. We're seeing the, the Chinese influence. But in a wider point... Here's the thing, okay, and you said nice things about the podcast, which I appreciate, but in some ways, I'm actually the wrong person to ask about this. I've been working in Stuka this year in a professional capacity for 25 years. I was a fan long before then, um, and hopefully I've, I've contributed something and still can, and hopefully in 10 years' time I'll still be contributing. But if we're talking about the future, we need, I think, different voices, different views, uh, more diverse people to come into the sport and we need to hear from them and I come from a very particular history you know the 80s all of that the crucible which I sort of hang on to um, but if we're looking to the future we we do need different perspectives and I'll give you an example okay there's a young guy at World Snooker Tour he started about six months ago he's called Alex he's out of university first job and World Snooker had no they do a lot of social media and digital media they had no real interest in TikTok, which is not a platform I could tell you much about, but it's popular with young people. And Alex came in and he said, I'll do, I'll do your TikTok account as one of the things I'll do. And he has made it a massive success in a very short space of time. They have hundreds of thousands of followers. They did a video on there that got over 13 million views. It's the most successful thing they've ever done. But that's because he's from that world, okay? He understands it. And we need more people like that if we're going to say how do we appeal to the next generation of snooker fans, we need to ask people from that generation. There's no point asking people like me. Like, hey, I'm not saying I've had my time, but that's not my area. Let's listen to people like that. And maybe what World Snooker need to do is try and be a bit more diverse. If you look at their board, you know, and no offence to any of them, but they are all middle-aged white blokes, you know. It's, it's not very diverse. And if we're trying to take snooker to different markets and different audiences... Don't try and second-guess what they want. Go and ask them. (laughs) Go and ask them. Find people from those generations, those demographic groups, and bring them into the fold. So in terms of where Snook will be in 10 years, I honestly don't know Um, because I have a fixed view of what it is now. Uh, And there will be people with better ideas than me about how it can be transformed, how it can move forward, and I think we need to listen to them. Um, So it's not maybe a great answer, but that is my answer. I don't know. And I'm probably not the right person to ask. I hope it's doing well, is all I can say. I really do. Ah, Gordon writes, After your previous episode, it brought up a couple of questions I've had for quite a while, mostly on the production broadcaster side of things. I realise you're not necessarily going to know an answer to all of these, but I'd be really interested in your thoughts about them. Another listener had written in last time about the BBC scoreboard and whether Eurosport could get a clean feed without it, which led to a discussion about the concept of the world feed. In relation to that, something that I noticed this season is that all the Home Nations events seem to be run by World Snooker Tour directly with generic replay and scoreboard graphics, but with the added presence of a WST logo in the bottom right of all their content. Is this because WST have decided they want to be host broadcaster to as many of the tournaments on the calendar as possible, to be in line with a number of other sports who have in recent years brought the production of their sport event in-house instead of having it done by external broadcasters. P.S. This seems to have been done on the ITV events as well, which have the ITV scoreboard graphic covered up 
by a WST style scoreboard on any of the video clips WST upload. I asked this because in the course of the home nations, it was quite cluttered having so many graphics on screen. In the TV broadcast, you'd have Eurosport channel graphic in the top right, home Nations series in the bottom left, and the WST icon in the bottom right. With the upper camera, where the scoreboard traditionally shows up, showing off the advertising boards, there was often more text on screen than snooker, often making it hard to see the table. Well, let's deal with that first before we move on to the next point. Um, the production is done by Loop Productions, who are owned by Matchroom, who own World Snooker Tour. So it is kind of all in-house, you're quite right. Um, but we're showing... I mean, Eurosport are effectively tour partners with World Snooker Tour because they show all the tournaments. Not quite all of them. They're not showing the Players' Championship um, outside Britain this year because it clashes with the Winter Olympics. But they show far more snooker than anyone else. And I think they're just, they're just demonstrating that that's a partnership. Um, I take your point about logos. TV graphics in, in general these days tend to be quite cluttered. Hopefully it doesn't uh, it doesn't sort of put you off the actual snooker, but yes, they, it is pr- essentially produced in house and then given to the broadcasters. But it, but it, the, for example, we were talking about directors earlier. They're all the people who've been doing it for years for other for other companies. IMG used to do it, um, so they're all very experienced. The camera operators, you know, they go to every tournament. I mean, you know, you wouldn't find better than those guys. They're brilliant. Um, let's move on. Continuing uh, Colin's email uh, in the previous episode, people talked about whether. The BBC, it's not Colin, it's Gordon, by the way. Uh, in the previous episode, people talked about whether the BBC should continue to be part of snooker, and you mentioned about the close relationship the Beeb has with WST. Both of us know a licence fee freeze will, pay a mass, will play a massive part in whether they leave the sport, which, in my opinion, will be catastrophic, as will be less wall-to-wall, free-to-air snooker coverage in the UK. Free sports isn't on Freeview, stroke FreeSat, and Quest has unreliable coverage of the home nations. Uh, I think is free sports not on Freeview. I, I, I always thought it was. In fact, I'm sure it is. Because anyway, well, that, well, that's a debate for another time. Uh, do you think the Beeb should be trying to expand its snooker portfolio to show that it has a commitment to snooker? I feel the shootout would really benefit from additional free-to-air broadcast partner. We all know the event is not necessarily the best for players, but it's great for fans. And having a tournament like the shootout on free-to-air television would honestly give snooker much more exposure to casual fans in the UK. Okay, let's deal with all that. Um, I think everyone agrees in the UK, and this is a UK-centric question, so apologies to people in Fiji maybe for this, but the BBC have been important. Obviously, they've shown snooker you know, for decades, and, and, and the game was largely built on their coverage. I don't think they want any more. I think they've got enough, and this is kind of... I'm going to use the phrase sleight of hand here, because it is in a way. They got rid of their fourth event, and that's when this Triple Crown series was... or the Triple Crown concept was solidified... So actually, they're showing less snooker, but they're saying it's more important. They got rid of the fourth event, but they're saying, but we've got the biggest three. That's part of the whole branding exercise for that Triple Crown, that now is just commonplace. People have just accepted it um, without any kind of consideration for the history. Um, They don't want any more snooker. They show more live snooker than they do most other sports. They still have a big commitment. Nine days of the UK Championship, eight days of the Masters, 17 days of the World Championship. Still a big commitment. There's no sign of that... um, going away uh, but as you say the licence fee settlement possibly you know, could play a part in that but I don't think they want the shootout ITV had it it didn't do great for them they they prefer the tour championship and champion championship and their other tournaments uh, the shootout works fine in Eurosport I know not everyone has Eurosport um, but it, at least it goes round 60 countries it's all very well saying you know, free to air in the UK but that's only the UK um, Eurosport play a massive role in 
promoting snooker around Europe and around the world and uh, obviously self-interest because I, I commentate for them but long may it continue uh, where do we go now oh yes yeah, so Gordon is continuing you probably heard all the rumours about the BBC how the BBC seemed to want to get rid of John Virgo and Dennis Taylor as commentators on their coverage while I realise that all good things must come to an end it feels that Virgo and Dennis not being part of snooker would be a major loss given their decades worth of experience do you think ITV and or Eurosport should give them an opportunity to continue commentating on their events even if it's only the UK based ones or does Eurosport prefer to keep a much smaller commentating team? Eurosport coverage is always great, but it often feels like there's only four commentators for most of their tournaments. Uh, I'm sure that Virgo and Dennis would add a lot to the coverage of these tournaments, particularly the home nations. PSU, Allen and Folsey are great additions to any commentary team. Obviously, you're contracted to others like Matchroom and ITV, but would you ever consider doing some commentary on the BBC if you're asked? Well, it's not for me to say whether anyone would offer them any more work. Um... I think I would say this about the two of them. They're legends of the sport. They've contributed huge amounts. They've also had a very good run. You know, we're talking 40 years. Um, I'm not saying I'm not supporting that their run should end, but it's going to end sometime, as it is for everybody. Um, Eurosport have actually quite a large team. Um, Dominic Dell's come in. Alan Manis has come in this season in particular. Obviously, Neil and Joe uh, are stalwarts of it as well. Um, but you know, it's not up to me to say whether they would any of the broadcaster would would approach them or not. Um, would I ever consider commentating with the BBC? I've, they've never asked me. I don't expect them to. They have their own team, all all big hitters, all excellent. Um, but I can assure you, if I was offered work by anybody, I would consider it, and that includes the BBC as much as it includes anybody else. But I don't expect that to happen, and I very much enjoy commentating for the people that I currently commentate for. Tony Finnegan. Right, I would just like to refer to the issue of on-screen scoreline graphics, which you briefly touched upon in last week's podcast. When answering a listener's email, you mentioned how in the past the scoreboard only sporadically came on the TV screen. This would mean you would have to watch the game for a few minutes before you knew the scores, or even sometimes who the opponent was. Now, I must serve a niche warning for what is about to follow. And I can tell you, having read this, this is a terrific email from Tony. He says, as a snooker-loving child growing up in the 1980s, I took particular notice of this sporadically appearing scoreboard with its distinctive white lettering and numbering. I studied it to such an extent that I realised it would only display a player's break when they had reached the magical number of 44. Below this number, and you only knew what the break was from what the referee was calling out. This magical number of 44 was to stay with me. As a young snooker player on my four-foot table in the lounge, it became my goal to make a break of 44 or above, so if I was playing on TV, my break would be shown on the screen. The first time I achieved this, I was 10 years old and playing with my dad. As I neared the magical figure, it brought about nervous twitches and tentative cueing, but elation when I finally reached it. My break of 44 had me holding my cue above my head in true Dennis Taylor style. My dad wondered what all the celebrations were for, as I still had the black to pot. So I explained the 44 break. But neither my dad or anyone else had ever noticed this scoreboard detail. I'm never going to achieve a 147, so any break of 44 or above will always be my 147. I've only achieved this on three occasions on a full-size table. Maybe I'm wrong and the only one who noticed this nostalgic scoreboard pattern. Of course, now the break is constantly shown on the scoreboard graphics, so this niche sort of thing has been stopped, thank goodness. But I suppose the point of all this... I wonder who decided that 44 was the figure at which a break could officially be called a break and signified as such on the TV screen. One last thing on scoreboard graphics I've noticed. In snooker, the length of matches are always shown as best-ofs, so to work out the number of frames to win requires a bit of simple arithmetic. 
but in darts it always gives the number of sets or legs required as first two, thus requiring no arithmetic at all. Maybe the scoreline graphics people think snooker watchers are better at maths and can work it out for themselves, although this seems doubtful as both sports require good mental arithmetic. And Tony signs off by telling us that he's actually turning 44 this year. Well, there's a lot there, isn't there? We seem to be talking a lot about graphics. But, um, I, yeah, I have to say, I'm not doubting you at all, Tony. I'd never noticed that it was uh, 44 was the magic number. You'd think 50 would be, really, wouldn't you? If you're gonna, That's a sort of proper milestone, I suppose, a half century. But I don't know. I mean, it was a very different time. Uh, people now, you know, maybe not would believe it, but you can go back on YouTube and, and, and look at old matches. The score would just flash up now and again. You know, it wouldn't be permanently on the screen. I think it started to be permanently on the screen. I think I know exactly the tournament. I think it was the World Masters 1991 in Birmingham. That was a Barry Hearn production on Eurosport. I think that was the first time that there was permanent scores on the screen. Sky, in their coverage, definitely had it. I think the BBC from early 90s, I'm going to say 93, 94, started to have it. So that's when it became a thing. Um, but certainly before that, you know, yeah, you had to basically just wait for them to tell you, and you had to sort of concentrate. But uh, you know, people knew, knew knew no better, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a great trauma. It was just that's how it was. Um, but uh, anyway, good luck with any more breaks of forty-four or above, Tony. We come now to I'm going to say Sam Kerush, and if I pronounce your name incorrectly, Sam, well, join the queue. He says, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I have a background in elite sport performance analysis and know how much match statistics can make a difference to players. With this in mind, I wonder what your thoughts are on increasing the detail of stats in the professional game. As far as I'm aware, the current stats are limited to pot success, safety success, rest success, balls potted and shot time. Whilst these stats are important and help build a picture of how players are performing, I can't help but feel more could be done. Whilst it may be too much information to show live during matches, it may be suited to the studio before and after games. Most importantly, it could be used by players to help improve their game. For example, information could be gathered on aspects such as shot type, screw stun, etc., finishing high-low on the blue, landing on a red after going into the pack and running out of position. Although not all players will buy into this, I feel many would find it beneficial. A player that springs to mind is Neil Robertson, who seems to have a very detailed approach to the game. I remember him saying he selects certain shots based on his opponent if he feels they have a weakness in an aspect of their game. Well, thank you, Sam. Uh, I mean, I think, it, yeah, it's all interesting. The only thing is, you you know, you, it all comes down to essentially paying people to, to work it all out. So you might have to have another body in there doing it, and then that's another person you've got to pay every day. Ian Burns was doing it during the German Masters. He started doing it for, for Loop Productions, and obviously he knows his stuff because he's a main tour player. Um, so... It's all interesting. I definitely think all that all that would be of interest. I know some people think it's overdone um, sometimes, all the pot success and that, and I thought at times during the Masters actually it was overdone a little bit. Um, but certainly, yeah, the, the percentage of times that you land high on the blue when you're playing that shot is, is of interest, actually. Um, there are certain sports, I think, that lend themselves to this stuff. Cricket, you know, the way, in particular, Sky in the UK have moved cricket coverage on so many... Um, you know stats now about you know exactly where a player's hit the ball uh where a bowler sort of pitched the ball all this sort of stuff it's all it's all there if you're interested and i think a lot of people in that sport are because cricket seems to attract or certainly test cricket seems to attract that sort of mind snooker i think is is similar actually and i think that all this stuff is useful um and i think players would definitely be interested in it although many of them would pretend they're not neil robertson is one who would not pretend because you're quite right he, he looks at all that stuff so i'm i'm not i wouldn't say 
I was against any of your suggestions. It's just literally finding the the people to actually paying the people to to, to sit there all day logging it all, um, and that would maybe be, you know, the, the 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 only the only reason it wouldn't actually be taken forward. Mark Baisley writes, I was listening to this week's podcast and your correspondent who got in touch about power snooker brought to the surface from the deepest recesses of my memory another short-lived variant of the game, namely Ten Ball. As with so much from niche pop culture history, the sole Ten Ball tournament from 1995 lives on via YouTube in the form of highlights from the event initially broadcast on ITV, which were apparently released on VHS afterwards. What's interesting about this is that Steve Davis was not only an apparently vocal proponent of the self-declared snooker of the 90s, Temple's, Temple's organisers foreshadowing gods of snooker, and implying that no one ever played the traditional version again after 1989, but played a big role in developing the rules of this as well. And while you rightly pointed out part of the reason power snooker never caught on was because it couldn't be played in clubs or by the casual player, it did seem as if Temple's organisers were trying to grow up beyond the eight pros who took part in the tournament. Indeed, at the end of the highlights video, host Philip Schofield not only advertises a phone number to call for more information on Ten Ball, but also invites anyone who's playing Ten Ball in clubs to phone in to tell them how they got on. I wonder if there are any listeners out there who did play Ten Ball in a club anywhere, or even phoned in to report their results, or did it just quietly die out to join Snooker Plus and Power Snooker as little more than a footnote in the sports history? P.S. With this being the Snooker Scene podcast, could you advise on where the magazine is on sale these days? I struggle to find one, and even though I work in the digital media space, I'm quite old school in that I do like a physical copy of something to read. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Mark. I'm fascinated by the idea that phone line that you mentioned, the 10-ball phone line, might still be in operation. There's an old boy sat there. No one's phoned it for 25 years, and suddenly I'd love someone to ring up and say, I've, I've, yeah, I've just played 10-ball. He's thinking at last, a call. Um... It was a fad, really. It was cashing in on snooker's popularity and also cashing in... It, was, it wasn't It was so much an alternative to snooker. What it was, it was an alternative to Big Break because it was a Saturday, Saturday night entertainment. Big Break was on BBC One. And so ITV was thinking, OK, this is popular. What can we do to rival it? And Temple wasn't a quiz. It was a kind of hybrid of snooker and pool. Um, but it didn't take off because it wasn't as good as snooker. Like all these things, they're not actually as good as snooker. Um, a lot of the top players played in it. I I don't know whether Barry was involved off the top of my head, Barry Hearn. But if he but if he was, then Steve Davis would have been who you mentioned there. They possibly were. Uh, Philip Schofield, as you say, presented it. Yes, it, it. I think it ran for one series. It, it just wasn't. You know, it wasn't snooker and snooker. Um, you know, is very popular. But I'm pretty sure. I think I said this years ago on this podcast. There was definitely one night, an April night, Saturday evening on the BBC, early evening, where on BBC One they were showing Big Break. On BBC Two, they were showing the World Snooker Championship. And on ITV, they were showing Temple, all within the space of a couple of hours. Um, Channel Four were probably showing some sort of French black and white film, as they should, because they're Channel Four. Uh, so yeah, Temple, any any memories on Temple? And if anyone rang that number, I'd be fascinated to know if anyone rang that number and what exactly what exactly they said when you told them how you got on. I mean, well, mind boggles. Um, the snoo- uh, snooker scene, the magazine, it is still going. Clive, you know, is <laughs> is an extraordinarily loyal servant to the sport. He's in his eighties now, but he loves producing it still. Um, it is hard to find physically because, uh, well, he he would tell you himself about the way uh, news agents sort of charge to stock magazines. The best thing to do would be to, I guess, subscribe, order it directly uh, in the magazine itself. There are details on how to do that. Um, so yes, but it, it it is still available. But finding one in the shop, 
Um, it's a bit like J.R. Hartley, if you remember. And here's a reference for everyone in Fiji. J.R. Hartley um, was <laughs> was a was a, a a character in a, in the Yellow Pages advert. Now there'll be people saying, "What's Yellow Pages?" But bear with me. And he had a book, Fly Fishing, by by J.R. Hartley, uh, and he couldn't find it in any shop. And eventually, he rang the Yellow Pages, and there was a copy. And of course, it turned out he was he was J.R. Hartley. I get the feeling that that, <laughs> that anecdote should be edited out because it was really dull. But anyway, not the email. My my response to it. Um, let's liven things up. Michael Holt, not that one. He says hello from sunny San Diego. That already wins best best uh, hello of the week. I'm writing to describe. Now we had last week uh, or a couple of weeks ago, people uh, sort of varied the game. People that had come up within clubs, and I asked for any others. And Michael says I'm writing to describe Crash, a very popular gambling game we used to play at the Marlborough Snooker Club back in the 80s in Manchester. Sadly, long since closed. Any number of players can play. Usually, we'd have between four and six. The six colours are arranged on a in a excuse me, in a pyramid with all 15 reds surrounding them. Top red on the pink spot. Everyone would put a quid or two in the kitty and draw a bottle top numbered from two to seven out of a cloth bag to determine the order of play. All the tops go back in the bag and the game begins. On the break, a ball must hit a cushion or go in the pocket. You see, they're way ahead of the game with the shootout because that's the rule there. Uh, he says you need to pot a red before you can pick a top from the bag. And if you pot the corresponding colour, you win the kitty and the game ends. If you pot a different colour, you need to pot another red to try and get on your colour to win the game. However, if someone else pots your colour, you're dead, i.e. you can't win, but you can force a double game by ensuring no one else wins. Plus, you have to declare that you're dead. The same applies if you pot a red and pick a dead top out of the bag. If all colours are potted and no one wins, the game restarts and everyone puts in the kitty again. You're also dead if you foul, go in off, fail to hit a ball on, touch a ball with your sleeve, etc. If anyone was deemed to be winning too much, or if they were just too good, we'd put them on two reds, that is, pot two reds to pick a top or go for a colour. It's a lot of fun. Dead players gang up to kill the live ones, and there's a lot of bluffing to fool people about which colour you're on. It was also a great way to give everyone a chance to play when there's only one table free and a few players keen to have a game. Plus, you could win a few quid. Well, yes, this crash, uh, that is um, slightly more familiar. Um, and uh, you make a good point there, because here's the thing about snooker, OK? If you're not great at it, it, it's not a lot of fun to play. You know, the frames can go on a long time. It's not like pool, which is more sociable. So finding ways to involve people like this and these sort of variants, it's all good social fun. You know, it would never take off on TV, but in terms of playing with your friends, gang of mates in, in a snooker club, getting everyone involved, these sort of variants and these things that people come up with and a little bit of gambling on the side. It's all part of the good fun of the snooker. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, glad, glad, to, glad to hear your memories and uh, hope all is well in San Diego. Liam Sandbrook writes, I watched most of the shootout last, we- last weekend and quite enjoyed it. One thing that stuck out to me is I can't remember seeing anyone get a kick during the tournament. There was a few miscues, but can you remember any? I may be wrong. Any thoughts of this and why? I didn't see many, um, although it's such a, it's such a sort of fast and furious um, style of the game. You know, it's it sort of um, I don't know. It just goes by in a flash. So if there, there may have been a couple that I didn't, that I didn't spot. Um, the conditions were beautiful there. Um, that table, for some reason, they always get really, really good. Um, and yeah, it, uh, it it was reflected in in what I thought was <laughs> at times, given the format, actually quite high quality play particularly from the winner. But you're right, I didn't actually spot any, none that I can think of anyway. Now, not saying that this podcast is badly badly run, but uh, Brian Campbell, who we heard from earlier on, asking questions, uh, 
what was he asking about? Oh, yes, Jorge Snooker in 10 years' time. He actually put an addendum to his email, which I meant to add to it, and he, I didn't. But anyway, I'll, I'll do it now, uh, assuming anyone's still listening. Um, what I was going to ask, we hear comments from players about their favourite and least favourite venues. Is it the same for commentators? Is your commentary box the same at each venue? Do some venues afford you, afford you a better view than others? How much do you look at the monitor as opposed to the table in front of you? Now, I think uh, someone asked that last week, and the answer is you look at the monitor at least 90% of the time because, as, as I said last week, you're trying to um, you're trying to uh, obviously commentate to what people are watching at home. Uh, my favourite venue, I, mean, I should say not all events, certainly from Eurosport, are commentated from the venue, so I haven't been to every venue on the circuit. My favourite is definitely the Crucible. The view there is extraordinary, actually. You know, it's beautiful. I remember, I'm going to drop a name here, but I commentated with Ronnie O'Sullivan a few years ago. It was 2018, I think, the Higgins-Williams uh, world final that Mark Williams when it beat, when he beat John Higgins. And, obviously, Ronnie was the, is the other part of that class of 92. And he made the point, and it's something I hadn't thought about from a player's perspective. He said, well, first he said what a great view it was of the table and the arena. And he said, I've never seen this view before because he's obviously always been playing he's been in his seat or at the table he's never seen the view that the commentators would see and he said how great it was and I totally agree with him um, so that would be my favourite some are better than others um, it depends exactly where they put the box when funny enough at the Temperdrome and we weren't there this year but when we've been there there's always two commentary boxes Rolf Kalb at German Eurosport has one and the British commentators have the other one and that means neither one is right behind the action because one's off to the left and one's off to the right. And neither actually, I have to say, are in a great position to look at the table. Now, as I said, we're looking at the monitor most of the time. Um, other ones, certainly the ITV ones, you're always right in the thick of the action. Um, so, listen, it's always great to be at any tournament um, commentating. and they're all, They all have their own uh, sort of magic in the arena. Venues obviously vary, you know, in terms of backstage facilities and even just where they're located. I mean, I think... From a practical perspective, a lot of people like a venue near the hotel, so you can nip back, and you you know you're not sort of travelling miles to get in every day. Um, and obviously, you know places like Milton Keynes and Coventry, and, and indeed Bolton, where we did the uh, the Champion of Champions this season, they all have that, which is kind of good because you can just wander back to your room and you know mind your own business. But yeah, as I say, any venue um, is always great to be at. I'm at that stage now where I've, I've forgotten which ones I read out last week, but I'm pretty sure I didn't read this one from Callum Law. Um, because this is about venues. He said, You raised an interesting point last week about the need for tournaments to be held at better venues. I live near Aberdeen. We have a new arena in the city, which was finished shortly before the pandemic arrived. No expense was spared on the venue. There's a hotel on site, and it's close to Aberdeen Airport and the major road networks. I think it would be great to see snooker of some kind in the arena, and there's potentially a large target audience. As well as the city of Aberdeen, there's a number of large towns in Aberdeenshire and the cities of Dundee to the south and Inverness to the north. I know Aberdeen was perhaps regarded as a bit of a graveyard for snooker after the Grand Prix was held there in the 2000s and ticket sales were poor, but with this new arena and better promotion, I think an event could be a success. On a similar note, this talk of leaving the Crucible continues to rumble on. For what it's worth, I wouldn't want to see the World Championship leave the Crucible. However, if it was to move, I'd like to see WST revamp the UK Championship and move it to the Crucible. My idea would be to go back to the top 16 and 16 qualifiers playing at the venue in the UK Championship and played over two weeks. Play best of 11 in the last 32, best of 17 throughout to the final, have a three-session best of 25 final over two days. I know it's all hypothetical and there'd be a lot of logistical challenges to overcome, but that would be my idea because it would mean the Crucible is still part of snooker hosting one of the premier events of the calendar. 
part of my, I'm going to cough here, just excuse me. <coughs> you see, it's all human life here. Part of my idea comes from thinking the UK Championship needs a revamp of some kind. If World Snooker Tour and the BBC truly want people to think of it as one of the big three events on the circuit, to me they should do more to make it special. Being a member of the top 16 gets you into the Masters, into the crucible stage of the World Championship, so I think if the UK is meant to be on a par with those tournaments, the top 16 should get through to the latter stages of the UK as well. Although it has a great history and prestigious result, in recent years the UK has felt like any other tournament to me, and going back to 32 players in the televised stages and longer matches would make it a better option. In my opinion. Or make it better, in my opinion. He didn't use the word option. He said, make it better, in my opinion. Well, it's a good point, that, actually. about that, that latter point about the top 16 gets you to the Masters and the Crucible. Maybe there should be um, a change. But the problem is, of course, the flat draw is used in all ranking events other than the World Championship, including the UK. But I think, certainly, I agree that the prestige of the UK Championship would be increased if the field was a little bit more limited. You don't come in in the last 64 problem is you don't want to lose the top players so you either change the format as you've suggested or you risk you know losing the top players before tv it's it's a, it's a balancing act i i thought the uk championship this season was fantastic and i think york is fantastic i'm not a fan of uh well i'm not a fan of leaving the crucible someone else wrote in and I, I, unfortunately I, I seem to have lost the email but someone wrote in suggesting that the masters and the world championship should change venues um so that the the Masters was played at the Crucible and the World Championship was played at the Alexandra Palace. Oh, here it is. I think we read this out last week, actually. Martin Martin Magreed uh, from Omar. Um, see, this is, <laughs> this is my podcast. I can't remember the emails I've read out or not. But Martin was saying that he thinks there's more room at Ali Pali for two tables and the Crucible, obviously one table kind of comes into its own so and it does make some sort of sense when you think of it that way I don't agree though um, because the Crucible is the World Championship and the Alexandra Palace and London has become established as the home for the Masters and it's also just contractually you know Sheffield City Council pay a lot of money to have the World Championship they don't want the Masters they want the World Championship and if they lost the World Championship they may just cut their losses put their money into something else there'd be no snooker in Sheffield it's not as simple as just swapping venues so I think Definitely uh, the World Championship at the Crucible, you know, is what they want. And I think, really, it's what most people want. We talk a lot in snooker about changing this and changing that. A lot of them don't need to be changed, actually. And I think the venue, those venues are, are good. I think York is good for the UK. It's a terrific venue, the Barbican. The format, as Callum said, maybe is something that could be, could be looked at. <laughs> well, it's become a bit more shambolic as we've gone on, but I think we've got through most of the emails. Apologies if I did miss any, um, but uh, you know I've been busy this week at the German Masters. Uh, this has been recorded, as I say, before the final because I've got other things on this week. But that is it. We got through nearly an hour there. Thank you to all the emails. I appreciate all of them. Uh, you can you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. That's snookerscenepodcast at mail dot com. We're also proud members of the Sports Social Network. Do check out. There are other podcasts. There are lots of them. Uh, that's it for this week. So uh, the snooker action. We've got the Championship League coming to a head. Um, by the way, I should say, Neil Robertson was due to play. And uh, he's got COVID. He's isolating. Best wishes to Neil, of course. But the Group 7, uh, due to come in. Uh, I say due to because things change. Ronnie O'Sullivan and John Higgins. Actually, Ricky Walden has been called up as well. Um, after his uh, run in Germany. Um, and we've got Liza Carr and Wilson, Ding Jun Wee. I think Yambing Tao's in there. And then winner's group, um, Xiao Jing Tong is in that. 
so, you know, it's going to be a great week, actually. We're checking out on Free Sport and Matchroom Live. And then the following week, it's the Players' Championship in Wolverhampton, um, which is a new venue, the Aldersley Leisure Centre. Doesn't sound uh, <laughs> doesn't sound like it's going to be one of the most iconic venues, but we don't know because we've not been there yet. It might be fantastic, and let's hope it is. Players' Championship next week. That's on ITV4 in the UK. Um, and so on and so on. There's so much action still to come the rest of this season. A lot of tournaments coming up. Looking forward to all of it. But that is it for now. So thank you for listening as ever. And big thanks to everyone in Fiji. If we're not number one this week, obviously I will disown all of you. But uh, for now, <laughs> thanks for your support. And as we always say, goodbye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, full work limited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.